0: Reformed and Confessional exists to promote Reformed Confessionalism, to proclaim the sufficiency of Scripture, and to extol the supremacy of Christ over all things. I'm Nick Myers.
1: And I'm John Fry. Thank you so much for listening to the Reformed Confessional podcast. We are very excited to have you tuning in today as we discuss a topic that's near and dear to our heart. But before we do that, I wanted to just familiarize you with our website, Reform the Confessional. You can find us at reformconfess.com. Every other Monday, we will release a blogcast that recaps. So all we do is just simply read our old blogs, then we pull them out of the archive and make something old into something refreshing and new. And every Friday, New article will be released we have about six writers and you'll find a nice compliment of men who love the Lord some are pastors some are seminarians some of us are just parishioners uh, we've got flavors of biblical counseling and church history so please check us out share us with a friend and definitely always find us on social media Nick will talk about that a little later but with no further ado Nick for the you This topic is kind of like some unfinished business, so I'm going to go ahead and give it to you to introduce our topic and share your heart, where we're coming from, and we'll get into it.
0: Uh, Yeah, so a long time ago, I started uh, what is now called Reformed and Confessional. At the time, it was called the 1646 Covenanters. This was probably, I don't know, maybe four or five years ago. And at the time, it was very Presbyterian. It was very focused on... um, Really, that section only going down that 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 path um, of of 1646 uh, theology, Westminster theology, Presbyterian theology. But since then, uh, that had several iterations. I had to step back for a little while just because of moving and family situations and dynamics and things like that. And over time, it became the 1646. And that stuck around for a little while, but it was still very, very narrow, uh, very single, very single vision, very narrow vision, which isn't terrible. But that's just the the hole it was going down, and it really, it wasn't, uh, it didn't, it couldn't really capture a broad audience. And since then, John and I, uh, you know, you John and me, we we got together and started doing. Uh, Reformed and confessional, and the goal of Reformed and confessional was really to kind of broaden the umbrella, not and without broaden the umbrella without relinquishing faithfulness or theological purity or accuracy. Um, but back then, when I was doing the 1646 and 1646 Covenanters, I started the podcast, and one of the first things that we spoke about were what well, one of the first things that I spoke about was family worship. And, I start, and if you go back in, in our podcast archive, which is, I don't know, maybe 15 or 20 strong, we, uh, I, I spoke about, I started at the base, what is worship? And I spent probably a good, I don't know, 30 minutes or so talking about what is worship from, the, fr- from a book by a gentleman named Denny Proteau, and really just to set the groundwork of what biblical worship is, what it looks like, what we're doing when we worship. And I won't go into it long because uh, you can go back and listen to the podcast. But basically, when we worship God, when we're worshiping the Lord, we are doing something that is sacred. We're giving Him homage. We're, we're bowing down, not only not only maybe uh, physically, but also within our hearts. We're bowing down before God, seeing Him as worthy, seeing his, Him as holy, and revering Him. And so, and I and I gave that preface, that foundation, because. It's really important as we enter into the topic we're going to discuss today and for subsequent weeks to know what worship is. That way, when we do this in our homes with our, with our wives and our husbands and our children, we have a proper mindset, a proper direction for what, what we're aiming to do. That This isn't just some kind of flippant activity that we're doing because we're told to or to check a box or because it's fun and the kids like singing. Uh, We're really entering into God's, into the heavenlies with the saints throughout the week, and we're worshiping God as a family, and then that's also as practice for worshiping God on his day with the rest of the saints. And so, yeah, you're right. You know, this is um, a really great, I'm (laughs) really happy to be back here doing this because it's been, it's been years, and I've been chomping at the bit to get it done, but just haven't been able to, to find a good good way to do it, and or a good person to do it with, so I'm I'm very thankful to be back here and, and getting this done. But so that kind of enters us into really what the topic is that we're going to be talking about today. So just real fast, if you want to hear about you know what worship is, you can go back. I think it's episode one for what is worship. But today we're going to be talking about family worship and the aspect of worshiping God as a family in your homes. And with the word, with singing, with praying, training our children to love god and and how to how to be faithful, how to be faithful you know the the requirements for parents is to raise their children to be faithful, not to be believers, we can't control that, but to but to teach them faithfulness. and so that's what we're going to be talking about today what what that looks like, how do we do it, and what the Lord expects.
1: Yeah, well said, Nick. I appreciate that. And to be sure, Nick is still a 1646 Westminster man, uh, even yeah. though, um, like you said, we broaden the scope, and which I'm thankful for. And one of the phrases that we will tackle head on in the future is reform solidarity. That's one of our goals to show today. Another thing too, I, I don't know for 100% certain, but I think that in that old episode, you mentioned that you're awaiting the birth of your third child. And Uh, now you have a fourth (laughs) child. So since then, his family, in terms of children, have doubled. And uh, that's a little bit of what he's been busy with. But right now, in terms of structure, just so you can think in your mind of how we want to organize this conversation, the first thing we're going to do is talk about family worship from the biblical aspect. And then the second thing we'll do is talk about it from a confessional aspect. So from a biblical aspect, we just want to present three scripture passages where we see that certainly from the times of the Old Testament all the way into the New Testament, there is a biblical precedence. There is a biblical example for us to follow. So Nick is going to go ahead and and read a scripture passage. We're using, of course, uh, Moses as an example here. We're going to hone in on Deuteronomy chapter 6, starting at verse 4. So if Nick if you can uh, go ahead and read that for us, and then I'll ask you go ahead and just any any comments uh, that you have to follow on that, and how that uh, affects uh, your family worship.
0: Yeah. Um, okay. So Deuteronomy six, starting verse four: "Hear, O Israel: The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children." And shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them on your you. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And uh, yeah, I'll probably in there. So that's that's Deuteronomy six four through nine. Um, and so this this passage is is actually fairly crucial because. Here, here's one thing that I have found that's that's very interesting. I find this to be very interesting. When we look in Scripture, most, not all, but most of our instruction of how to raise our families, what families should look like, how we discipline, wisdom of of raising our children, is found in the Old Testament. Right? I'm not saying all of it, right? Because of course we have places like in, Deuteron- in Ephesians six, where where Paul reiterates the fifth commandment but we have this reality that the vast majority of what we're told to do as parents is is there it's <laughs> before Matthew um and and i find that that very compelling and so we look we look at this here we're told god, god says these words that i command you today shall be on your hearts so so right off the bat we get this this view that this isn't just something that's for for your head this isn't just something that that ought to be known by the by the you know the lump between your ears this is something that has to be on your heart something that you know and love and desire to do desire to obey these commands and then what is it teach them diligently to your children so not in a cavalier way not in a flippant oh yeah that's right by the way we need to obey god's command kind of way but a diligent way these are on So so what does this mean these laws these commands have to be in the hearts of the parents if we're ever to assume them to be on the hearts of the children. This is what God is telling us to do. Teach them diligently to your children requires a diligent understanding of them by the parents. And talk with them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise. This is all the time. If we're talking about what is family worship, in a sense, we could say that that we're to be teaching our children how to worship the Lord and be faithful all the time. This isn't just a a sunday thing or a or an evening thing this is a everyday every every chance you get kind of thing and moses really bears brings that to bear here in these very few little little passages what do you think john
1: yeah i appreciate that especially as you read it i the word heart caught my ear and i thought you know when it's on the inside it will come out you know, and we know that from even Luke 6:45, from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And when you put God's word in your heart and the Holy Spirit uh, works when we read our Bible, when we hear the man of God preach, when we have discussions among friends like we do, uh, it, it gets its way in there. And certainly throughout the course of your everyday life, like in verse seven, talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down, that's That's all the positions that I assume in a day, Uh, sitting and walking and lying. And it's just the overflow of your life is worship. And here, the application is to your family. The only other thing I'll add before we move on is verse 9. It says, Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. And I remember several years ago, before we had children, um, when family worship was just myself and my wife, we really tried to apply that verse. And so we began to decorate our house with pictures that just had Bible verses on them. And right now, if I did a lap around our home, um, my wife took some really nice, uh, I don't know, you know, nice decorated sticky notes, basically, and had printed several Bible verses on them. So some, when I brush my teeth, I can see the Word of God written on the mirror of my bathroom. Uh, when I uh, When I cook, it's on the wall next to my mixer, you know, so that's just one way that you know this isn't just something that is archaic and applicable in Moses' day. Uh, really, put the put the word of God where you can see it, uh, put it in front of you when you read it formally, but put it throughout your house. Put it by your coffee maker. Put it on your refrigerator door, uh, and and that's just something that uh, I've really appreciated is an element that's in our house, and we intend to keep it there. Nick, did you did you have anything else before we moved
0: on? Well, just to I guess kind of carry on from what you were just saying. I don't know who said this and I'm probably going to butcher the quote, but essentially uh, the word of God that's hidden in your heart can't be, can't be taken away from you. You know, your Bibles can be stripped from you. Your books can be burned, but what's in your heart can't be removed from you. And so treasuring these things in our own hearts and encouraging our children to do the same will without doubt be, um, probably one of the single greatest blessings, not only in our lives, but in theirs as well. So, awesome. that's, um, yeah, that's what I, th- I, I mean, we, we hit it. Treasuring in the heart is absolutely what we ought to be doing with God's Word.
1: Okay, uh, now we'll, we'll stay there. Um, in the Old Testament, we'll move to uh, the Psalms. And Nick, go ahead, and if you are able to, please read Psalm 78, and we'll uh, read a Psalm of Asaph together.
0: Yes, all right, Psalm 78, starting in verse one. Uh, Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from our, from their children, sorry, we will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might, and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob, and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children, so that they should set their hope in God, and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments, and that they should not be like their fathers a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. What's your first impression when you look at that, John?
1: Yeah, of course, verse three, you know, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. And that's a blessing, Um, you know, to have a parent who has shared with you, and the next verse tells what they've shared. It's the deeds of the Lord. And to have a a testimony, a a legacy, a generational legacy, that's what stands out to me in in the context of what we're discussing. And I I love the declaration in in verse 2. I will open my mouth in a parable, I will utter utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. And that puts the onus on the home, on the family. And then, of course, verse 4, we will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation, the glorious deeds of the Lord and His might and the wonders that He has done. And I hope that our goal in this is to obviously bring glory to God, but to encourage people, whether it's a husband, a wife, or a mother, a father, or even the child, that when we are in family worship, certainly, and, and later we'll cover some specifics of that, but all we're really doing is giving our testimony. We're sharing the glorious deeds of the Lord uh, using the Bible, using song, using prayer, and using story. And so, uh, the other thing I would say in verse 5, he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach their children. What we are trying to teach our children, I guess what that does for me as a father, knowing my humanity, knowing my shortcomings, I don't know every word of the Bible, and um what that does is removes I guess any false pressure uh to to just be an over the top scholar when i'm I'm there with my wife and kids because all I'm doing is giving a testimony of what he established um what he commanded, and echoing that, trying to live that as an example, and then just be available faithfully like you had said to to teach our children to be faithful, not this self-generated um, curriculum, but simply thus saith the word of God, and, and put it there uh, for their eyes and for their ears, and and pray that the Lord quickens their heart.
0: Yeah, uh, I couldn't do anything but say amen to that, brother. Um, <clears throat> as I'm as I'm reading this, one of the things that I think is really encouraging is that in verse two. We see that this is, this is a, a shadow of what Christ would do in when he comes to earth, in his earthly ministry. We see that, right, he says, I will open my mouth in a parable, I'll utter dark sayings from old. And, and this is what, what Asaph is saying, but I think it, it applies to Christ, like Matthew 2, and he opened his mouth and he taught them, right? What did Jesus do? He taught in parables very often. And I think, right, what we have here is the glory of Christ, the glory of God being proclaimed perfectly in Christ, and we're encouraged to be like him in proclaiming that glory to our children. And what I think is really interesting is that there's a a lot of talk in, there's a lot of talk in culture about making things that are, I guess, age-appropriate for our children. And I'm not saying we shouldn't do that, like, we shouldn't. Be teaching children. We should be teaching children in ways that they can understand. But what I find fascinating is that when you look at the glorious deeds of the Lord, right? That's extolled here in verse four. But tell them the t- tell them t- uh, tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and His might and the wonders that He has done. Well, what does that include? Well, that includes His destruction of Egypt, His uh, His destruction of pagan cities and men, women, children, and animals, it includes all of these things. It includes all of the text. It includes all of scripture. And so we shouldn't be hiding these things that God has done from our children. I'm not saying we need to be telling them these things in gory, you know, unflattering detail, but but as the scripture describes them in, in its perfect, the way that God describes what he has done in his word is excellent. He talks about things that are, that. That could be described in a much more vulgar way, but he does it with, with excellent purity, and, um, y- you know, he 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 keeps these things. He explains the things that go on in the world in a way that we can, without shame and or blemish, discuss them with our children, and I think that's really crucial to to think in our minds. Well, I don't need to cower away from or be be afraid to tell my children things the Lord has done. He tells me to do it. But also, it's good that they know these things. And what does that do? Like, in my family, that opens up conversations about death a lot. Because part of being, and we can get into this at other topics, bringing up some stuff here. But, but part of being a Christian, part of being faithful to the Lord is learning how to die well. is Learning what death means. is Learning that death isn't something to be afraid of. And if we teach our children these things, we, we're, we're being taught that, you know, these unbelievers, people who hate the Lord... The Lord crushes, the Lord uh, destroys, but those who are in Christ, Christ has been destroyed on our behalf. Christ has been crushed for us, and so as I look at this, I, I see, I see a shadow of that would be fulfilled in Christ, with the sayings of old, the the deeds of the Lord being told by Him, and an encouragement for us to do the same. But also, like you were saying, John, the next generation, we. And there are some theologians and some pastors that, I, that say this that I really admire. Far too often, Christians are not thinking about the next generation. They're not thinking about their grandkids or their great-grandkids. They're not thinking about the legacy that they're leaving behind. I, I'm a first-generation Christian. I'm, my wife and I are first-generation Christians. We're teaching our children to love the Lord. And I it is my prayer that... That my children's children's children will be so much more faithful than I ever could be, but that the Lord would use me and my wife to start this off, right? That, that we're thinking, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, a hundred years down the road, what am I doing now in my life with teaching my children that will, that will make it so in a hundred years, there's still faithful Myers babies out here, you know, there's still faithful Myers kids running around the world. Like, that's what I want. And right here, we're, we're, encouraged, we're encouraged to think that way to the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn. Are, you think, like, are we as Christians thinking about these kids that don't even exist yet, that, haven't even, that that aren't even a twinkling in the eye? We don't even like, who, who are they? I have no idea. But, I, but I, am I living faithfully now? Am I teaching my kids so that their kids' kids can be taught the word of God? And I think if we're not thinking that way, well, then we ought to, we have to consider changing that.
1: Yeah, uh, I appreciate what you said about verse two there in Psalm seventy-eight. Simply to open your mouth and and declare the word of God is certainly being Christ-like. And listen, we we certainly are flawed men, and we've we've made our mistakes in family worship, but we're we're hopefully we can just encourage you that. And, and when Nick was saying prior to moving on, I thought of a quote that I had read recently. It's actually from Ted Tripp, and he says give your children big truths they can grow into rather than light explanations they will grow out of. And, you know, you're right. Uh, difficult topics come up and I don't always have the answer, but because I have the benefit of the context of relationship, I can always come back and keep that conversation going. So um, with that, we would just say if, if you're in family worship and a topic comes up and you're not sure, it's, a, it's an okay thing to be honest and say I don't know. And then seek the help. And Nick, I've seen you do this of pastors and elders, and I've certainly had to do that myself, and I've consulted you on things. And uh, yeah, and that's another thing too. We want to offer this that always find us on social media. And if there's a question and we could be of any help, uh, find us. So we'll move on. Um, We we want to steward your time well. We're going to go to the New Testament, read one more passage, kind of just discuss it like we've done these past two. Uh, Nick, if you have Ephesians 5 ready, um, and we'll turn our toward... uh, for the the wife
0: yep all right so here it is ephesians 5 uh, 25 and 26 husbands love your wives as christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word Uh, let let me read let me let me finish the the thought in verse 27 so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. That she might be holy and without blemish. This uh, this section of scripture always, it always gives me the little the little giddies. Like I get little little goosebumps every time I when I read this because my charge as as not only a man of God but as my wife's head and covering is is so eloquently summed up here loves your love your husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her I remember this was years ago I was talking to one of my pastors and he asked me he said Nick when Eve sinned what ought Adam to have done and I I sat there befuddled. this was I sat there befuddled, just like I have no I don't know i I mean, I thought long and hard about this. And he sat there and he waited. He just looked at me with a little little grin on his face. And I said, I honestly I don't know. He said, he should have died for her. He should have been willing to die for her because of her sin. I I I mean, I was I was I, I and that seemed, and thinking about it, I'm like, I should have known that. That should have been that should have came to me and been obvious. But we see where Adam failed. We see his success in Christ. We see Christ—not not Adam's success. So we see Christ succeeding where Adam failed. We see Christ dying for the sinful bride, as Adam ought to have done for his sinful bride Eve. But right here, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. We're commanded to do the very same thing—to love our wives in the very same way. And now that doesn't include only dying. It, it does, right? You read Mark nine. We are to die to ourselves, take up our cross daily, follow Christ, be disciples who are willing to put our own desires and and needs and you know, under and consider others more significant than ourselves. Philippians two. But it also means teaching them, giving to them what God has given to us, being 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 a man who's willing to absolutely pour himself out in every way. Thinkable for the benefit of our wives, because Christ has done that for His church. What's our motivation? What's our what's our encouragement? Christ's actions, Christ's accomplishment, Christ's success in this. Right? We're not we're not men to live for ourselves. We're not we're not we're not men who are to be here and be like you serve me, make me a sandwich, woman. It's it's no. I'm going to make you a sandwich. <laughs> I'm going to serve you. I'm going to give you the word. I'm going to die for you. I'm going to I'm going to be Christ to you. I'm going to be your covering. And then we're both going to go to the Lord together because I'm not Christ. I'm not perfect. And I'm going to ask him to to sanctify your heart to to use that word that I teach you that I try to tell you in a way that cleanses you. And then I mean in verse 27, he he says uh, so that and he's talking about the church, he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And as men, as husbands, if that isn't our goal, I'm, and I'm not, I'm, I'm not in any way saying we're going to attain that with any level of perfection. But if our goal isn't set to present our wives to Christ as this holy, spotless, blemishless woman, we you know we need a we need a, a course correction because that ought to be our goal. And what that means is teaching them. What that means is praying for them, praying with them. You know, learning of Christ. Drawing nearer to Him together, and so anyway, I look at this. I look at this passage and am deeply encouraged, ch- uh, uh, wildly challenged, and I'm shown not only not only those things, and my and my, I'm not only shown what the Lord commands of me, but I'm also shown the impossibility of me accomplishing it, and my need for Christ all the more.
1: Yeah, thank you for that. And the the only addition I would make is that I'm going to quote. You actually, <laughs> and I heard you say Uh-oh. this once that the family begins at marriage, yeah. and this is an encouragement. Um, you know, this is something. Looking back, uh, I see prior to having kids, it's like when you have kids, there's a level of urgency because you realize you're molding a worldview. Uh, you're you're helping just everything that we just discussed in Deuteronomy and, and in Psalm 78, if I could go back uh what I just said, my quote of you, I wish I would have had that hammered into my heart and mind uh, on on the altar. And certainly, God is sovereign, God is faithful, and He has taught me a lot. And um, just to any, any young person out there that may hear this, to learn um, from me, you know, maybe um that truly the family does begin at marriage and washing your wife with the word for the glory of god um aiming at what what you just said you know that she may be holy and and without blemish so yeah i just want to reiterate that and i can just say as an encouragement to anybody that has um Failed to do that, or maybe or maybe you you share that too, and I know people personally they didn't they did not attend church, but when they had children, they were kind of like, Uh, we need to do something different, so God has given people children as a blessing and and they've came and and under the word of God um they've confessed and repented and walk as a Christian now um and so we thank God that He redeems people that way, but anyway, that's just uh kind of what I was thinking on that and um and I really appreciate. I can really see how Christ-centric uh, you've been with, with these texts, and I appreciate that about you, Nick. Um, so what we want to do is we've covered three scriptures, and what we've hoped to display here that this isn't just a notion or really, from our perspective, an option. This is a command of the Bible to simply put the Word in front of your family, read, pray, sing. Uh, and, and again, like I said, we'll talk about the specifics of that later, and some days, you know, you might not be able to do all of those things together. But we hope that these scriptures have kind of whet your appetite. Now what we want to do is transition a little bit to coming at this from a confessional perspective. So we won't spend as much time here, but we are going to leave ourselves room to come back in later episodes and maybe walk through some of the documents that we're about to reference right now. Personally, one of the things that um, has helped awaken me, if you will, is in in the Second London Baptist Confession, we know the 32 chapters there, but there's a preface. And I remember for the first time reading through the preface, and there's a conclusion paragraph, and then it starts, you know, chapter one of the Holy Scriptures. But the very last paragraph in the preface, right before the conclusion, is titled, Family Worship. And I gotta say, it is a, I would use the word, nearly vehement rebuke of people for forsaking this. And I'm going to read just a little bit of this, not the whole thing. It's not very long anyway, but you can definitely look it up on your own. But there is uh coming into this sentence and I'll I'll highlight kind of what I would like to share from a confessional perspective. But family worship was so important that it's in the preface and and it was the, the you know kind of the last thing before they jumped into the chapter. So it simply just says in quote may not the gross ignorance and instability of many With the profaneness of others, be justly charged upon their parents and masters, who have not trained them up in the way wherein they ought to walk when they were young, but have neglected those frequent and solemn commands which the Lord hath laid upon them, so to catechize and instruct them, that their tender years might be seasoned with the knowledge of the truth of God as revealed in the Scriptures. And it goes on from there, and I would encourage you to read that, it's very short, as I said. But that is what stuck out to me, to catechize and instruct them that their tender years might be seasoned with the knowledge of the truth of God as revealed in the Scriptures. These tender years, these formative years, and when it uses the word seasoned, I think of salt, salt being used to preserve the meat. We season them to preserve them, to instill morality according to the whole counsel of God with the knowledge of the truth. And then I'm I'm reminded of Colossians chapter 1. The reason why Paul went to such great lengths to teach them all the wisdom and understanding was so that they could live a life fully pleasing to God, in a manner worthy of the gospel, fully pleasing to God. And that's our aim. Our responsibility is to season them with the knowledge of the truth of God as revealed in the scriptures. And our hope for them is that they would live a life worthy of the gospel, fully pleasing to God. So, the that's just in the preface of the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession. And the, the focal point of our confessional portion here, Nick and I, you know, we've discussed the 1647 Directory of Private Worship, and that's and been modernized in its language, or the Directory for Family Worship. So, this document here, Nick, I'm gonna ask you just kinda of some of your thoughts. We're not gonna go necessarily and read it line by line, but what we do intend to is come back to this and look at this confessional document and equip you and help arm you and and see where they derive their statements from the scripture. We are gonna do that in the future to help out um, help out people who are trying to participate to the glory of God in family worship. So Nick, what are some of your just, you know, baseline introductory thoughts on the directory for family worship?
0: Real fast. Before I get in that, I just want to I just want to highlight something that you said, um, talking about seasoning our children for the Lord, right? That kind of idea, and I'm not saying that our children are neutral, morally neutral, anything like that. Um, but I I really think that's something that we should we should really think about, like when children are born. First of all, I really appreciate you bringing that up because that is thing, I think is something that's crucial. Like children are born. And they are, as far as their intellect, they're they're intelligent, right? They just don't have anything to be intelligent about, right? They just don't know anything. They have to be taught everything, everything. They have to learn it all. And now they're sinners, they need Christ, but but as we teach them and influence them and shape their worldview, we we are do it like we we need to realize our children they're like sponges. They will soak up everything. And if we're teaching them falsehoods and lies and sending them out into the world to become Romans, to become, you know, around pagan idolaters, they're going to learn that. We're not, and that won't build up their hearts for the Lord. That won't be teaching them in the fear and admonition of God. And so if we're going to season them, like John was saying, I mean, that's, they need to be getting the right stuff. They need to be getting, and, and that's a big, the Lord has, has, Granted us with a stewardship that is so weighty and and to, to look at our children as anything less I, I think is is something that uh, the Lord would not want us to do anyway that's all I just wanted to hit that real fast because I think that was such a crucial thing that you just you just commented on John so the confessional aspect of, of, uh, of family worship what's so fascinating about about this is that this is kind of like a lost art, right? When you go back to these, to the, to the 1600s, where when the, when the Westminster confession and the London Baptist confession were written, you see that this was something that, that these men saw as something that was vital. This wasn't just like, Hey, you should probably do this. Hey, this might be important. Think about it, you know, sleep on it. Let us know if you think that this is okay. Right. They didn't, they didn't give the option. They didn't, they didn't look for people's opinions. they weren't interested in in the schedules of of men or women. they weren't that's that, that wasn't their concern. <clears throat> they were altogether concerned with God being glorified in the public worship on the Lord's day and in private and secret worship uh, sorry and in family and secret worship throughout the week and and they actually invoked um, church discipline. When it was when it came to light that fathers were not doing this, so I'll just read this little section here. In the, it's really in like the preface or the uh, of the of the 1647 um, uh, Directory of Private Worship or Family Worship, um, and to the end that these directions may not be rendered ineffectual and unprofitable among some through the usual neglect of the very substance of the duty of family worship the assembly does further require and appoint ministers and ruling elders to make diligent search and inquiry in the congregations committed to their charge respectively, whether there be among them any family or families which, use the, which used to neglect the necessary duty. And if any such family be found, the head of the family is to be first um, admonished privately to amend his fault. And in case he is continuing therein, he is to be gravely and sadly reproved by the session. After which reproof, if he be found still in neglect worship, let him be for his obstinacy in such an offense, suspended and debarred from the Lord's Supper as being justly esteemed unworthy to communicate therein till he amend. Right, so what do we hear here? We hear Matthew 18. We see we hear the, um, the discipline process, you know, but, but this is so fascinating because what's the conclusion? You're you're debarred from the from the Lord's table. You're considered a tax collector and a publican. You're not you're you've sinned, you've not repented, but what is that sin? That sin is you've neglected the worship the, the, the worship in your home with your family. This is seen as such a grave sin, as such a grave error that the sessions, the, the these elders took serious action because right we don't want to be pragmatic why do they take that action because they saw the command in scripture now practically we can say well that's because also the command leads to practical benefits the propagation of the church the promotion of holiness within within a society but first and foremost these men these fathers these heads of these houses these coverings for their families have failed and 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 it's not just oh I I failed you know I, I need another chance. It's you've sinned. This is this is a this is a sin against God and and God has given us a remedy for this. Going to Christ, confessing that sin, repenting of it, and turning from that sin to Christ. But we have to first realize that that it is a sin and admit that it's a sin and that we have sinned, and then turning from it to practicing this family worship. And so in in this Reformed tradition this was seen as something very serious but but don't we we don't just want to look at this like oh man i got to do this otherwise i'm going to be disciplined and debarred there is a significant and serious blessing that comes from obedience to the lord i in in counseling i i often i often ask counselees if they've not or if they if they've ever experienced the joy of obedience to christ if they've experienced the the outcome of righteousness, the fruit of righteousness that is born through their obedience to the Lord, and the joy that that produces. And oftentimes it's no. The answer is no. And and a lot of times the commands of God look like drudgery. Why do we have to do this? Well, Jesus says, if you love me, whoever loves me keeps my commandments, and they're not burdensome to him. And so we see this. We see this charge to these to these heads of house, worship with your family, and the elders are very serious about this. So that's what I would say about that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and that is, uh, that's the tone. You could kind of hear it when I read the preface of the 1689. You can hear it um, right there that to enact church discipline is to acknowledge that the neglect of family worship is continual, unrepentant sin. And to look at the trajectory of Family worship, you could even see it in in 1677, 1689, as that's being written, they were struggling. And it's, from my perspective and in my life in the various churches I've been in and a part of, it's continued to degrade mostly. And I'm so thankful uh, for men like yourself, who really, uh, several years ago, recommended a book to me. And uh, it's called Family Worship, I believe, by Donald Whitney. Just a small booklet and very easy and very helpful. But the the point that we're trying to labor here is when we look at just the, the beginning, the introductory words of the Directory for Family Worship, they viewed the text that we just read in Deuteronomy and in Psalm and in uh in Psalm seventy eight and in Ephesians five. They view those as commands of God. Because you only discipline uh, the disobedient of commands, you know, not recommendations. And then I would just tack on w- another thing that that when I read that, my closing mark for this on the confessional aspect is that they assumed that there was also public worship going on. They assumed that these people were members of the church, that they were regular attenders. And uh, I say that because I recommend every one of you to go and get your favorite search engine and type 1647 directory for private family worship, and read this, and your jaw will drop in some places, and it will help equip you. But they assumed that you're faithfully going in public worship, and I think that's vital because it's not this little document for you to go and, you know, choose your own elder board and start your own, you know, household church. And I'm saying, you know, I understand that there may be a time and place for that, and there's various circumstances, but that is not what they were trying to do. When they say, here is private worship, go do it with your family, they're not hmm. saying replace it with that's a good point. corporate worship. And that's that's, that's the point really that point. I want to labor. So um, anything else before we, we move on to conclude here?
0: Not for right now. I think that's good.
1: Okay, yeah. And like I said, we we will definitely come back. To walk through, and we'll read um, line upon line in some parts of that. So hey, this will be um, just a little question. We'll kind of loose the reins and relax a little bit. Nick, just for anybody curious, could you maybe, your, your one or two minute answer here, uh, let us inside to uh, your home a little bit. <laughs> what does family worship look like? I won't say on a daily basis because I certainly know that it's not the same every day. Maybe maybe weekly. What are What are some features and what does that look like Uh, just for folks who might be wondering,
0: um, it's like, yeah, like you said, there are days when we don't do family worship. We either, you know, get home late or, you know, the kids are, are being exceptional that night. Um, (laughs) put it like that. (laughs) Um, but the majority of nights, you know, we're, we're doing family worship and really it's, it's very simple. It, well, (laughs) the goal is simple. Um. We uh, we have a little book that we work through, um, and the name of it is escaping me, but it is very good. It's it uh, we're going through how we how we know God right now. Um, so, like, does God speak? Yes, He spoke back in the Old Testament. Uh, does He speak to us now? Yes, through the Scriptures. Uh, these kinds of things, and this opens up a host of questions. Probably the majority of our worship it just has to do with my my seven year old asking very very good questions and we we sing a psalm and then we pray and you know this this what i don't want our listeners to to think is that you or i have it all figured out and that we do this really really well um my kids are seven five almost three and infant and um it is anything but a work of a masterpiece It's anything but a masterpiece i mean these kids are I have to say over and over, sit up straight. Stop playing. Don't play with your toy. Stop poking your sister. I mean, you know, they're kids. And it is frustrating sometimes. And it really shows you our need for Christ, our need for ourselves to repent because they're just displaying outwardly what I display, what I have, what's going on in my heart most of the time. Um, you know, <laughs> they're they're making little signals to each other from across the couches you know they're trying to talk to each other so and the thing is like it doesn't really matter how big your family is whether it's two kids four kids nine kids it's 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 tough and you just kind of got to roll with the punches and so often my wife is just like nick it's okay he can lay down his ears still work you know <laughs> and i'm like no he needs to sit up at attention cuz i'm this you know but but anyway so our family worship looks like three elements re or read, sing, pray, and a lot of what would look like to the outside, dysfunction. (laughs) But it it goes on, and I pray that the Lord is glorified in it. What about you, John?
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's probably a microcosm of our life that, despite our distractions and our idolatry and our continual need to repent. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) God implanted his word that, that was faithful to save us, um, despite ourselves. Yeah, just uh, kind of the same, and I would echo the same. So the the main thing that I try to do that's probably a little bit different than what you said, and I, you just shared generally, we make a point to just go through and say something we're thankful for each day. And I have two children, so I'll let a different person will pick the order that we go in each day. And that gives them a little bit of ownership, a little bit of buy-in. Um, and then we try to be very faithful to pray, um, every, every day. And like I said, sometimes we miss, but also it's okay to do it in the car, uh, when it's going to be late, you know, uh, sometimes on the couch, sometimes in someone's room, sometimes in another, but, and then, yeah, there are, um, you know, there's memory verses that are turned into songs some from the psalms and some from just just little like literally they're their kid songs just to help memorize we'll sing those from time to time sometimes all four of us will will choose a different one but yeah and then i often try to and this is something where i'm trying to grow and be better at is um you know when i when i select a passage of scripture certainly um Maybe trying to just, you know, sometimes I'll read it and that'll be it. And, and what I'm trying to do is have a little foresight to maybe explain something or ask a question, you know. And I do want to share this really quick because it's funny. Uh, uh, <laughs> my daughter, I was reading Jonah chapter one. And I did that because she's been, she's been ill the past couple of days. And I was just trying to spend some time with her. And uh, I thought, you know, man, every kid would like to hear about a guy getting swallowed by a big fish, you know. so. So hey, let's read Jonah one, and and I was about at verse ten, and she sat straight up, said, <laughs> yes. "Daddy," I said, "Yeah, baby." She goes, "Who created God?" And my first thought <laughs> was, "Nobody, silly." Um, but then I thought, "What in the world? We're reading Jonah, and you're wondering about was God created?" Mm-hmm. So of course, you know, I I told her, "No, he he is." Uh, he's the uncreated one, and and he has no yeah. beginning and he has no end, and that's called eternality. And <laughs> I love you. That's a good question. You know, and she laid down, and we finished Jonah one. So stuff like that happens all the time. And um, yeah. So anyway, I just thought I'd share with you. Now, uh, thank you for that. So yeah. Um, again, more to come on family worship. Uh, maybe not our next episode, but certainly in ones to come as we uh, strive together. So lastly, what we want to do is we want to have a recurring. Segment uh, we'll just be a couple more minutes, and we are going to call it what we're reading so Nick and I uh often will will read a couple books at a time, and I know this year specifically we've talked about we're really trying to mm. not go for the um really the quantity but the quality of reading so Nick, uh, what are you reading right now that you could tell uh, the listeners about
0: okay, so um there's two books that I'm reading in tandem, and then a third that I'm reading with my wife, which I can talk about later. But the one the one that I'm reading myself is called Instruments in the Redeemer's Hand by Paul Tripp. Now, listen, let me give a disclaimer. Despite things that are going on with this particular trip, uh, this is still an excellent book. Um, this book is, it's a biblical counseling book, which is really right up my alley as well as John's. If if you're new to, to biblical counseling, if you're trying to get into it, if you're trying to learn about it, this book is an is not is probably one of the greatest books that you can read as far as understanding the heart, understanding what biblical counseling looks like, what it looks like to use the word to to help people understand who Christ is, change what's you know hear the gospel, um, you know he talks about the, like. Do we really need help? Well, yes, of course, and he goes into Galatians five, what the heart is, how there's this war going on between us, um, and then following Christ, and then just really what it looks like to be compassionate, um to show love to people to um to enter into their world, to show them Christ, to show them who Christ is, and then you know how to be accepted by Christ and all these all these various things and when you read biblical counseling books. They they can swing one of two ways generally. Um, like if you read Jay Adams, for instance, it's very practical, and you might even ask yourself, like, where's the Holy Spirit in all this? Or if you read guys like Trip, you'll be like, the, you know, I I see the Spirit everywhere, but it, you know, can you tell me some nitty gritty kind of stuff? Can you make it a little more practical? And really, what we have to realize is these these are two two kind of generalized that's well, very general generalized approaches where um, everything Jay Adams writ, wrote he had as his presupposition the the work of the Holy Spirit and trip, same thing. Um, but it's more, hey, the gospel changes us, not technique. Anyway, so that's that's the one book I'm reading. And then the other book that I was challenged by a guy that I go to church with who's a seminarian, uh <laughs> I told him my reading list last year and he said, Nick, do you want to read some good books this year? I was like, I don't I don't know how to respond to that question. Um, but sure. Uh he said, why don't you why don't we read through uh Turretin's uh Sistio together this year I was like oh my gosh okay <laughs> she'll find so i've been reading through francis turton's um institutes of electic theology uh it's a it's a difficult read uh it was written a long time ago it's wonderful the spots that i can understand but uh his the one thing i'll say is his section on consequence Oh man, it's so good. He gives so many, he's, he gives excellent arguments for, for what the Westminster would call goodness or consequence and what the London Baptists would call things that are necessarily contained within the scripture. It's, fa- it's a fabulous read. I recommend you get both of these books.
1: Yeah. And he also uh, told me recently, Nick, you said that he talked about pastor salary.
0: Yes. In his third volume, he, one of the things he tackled is, is salaries for pastors. It's, it's like, this is a Cistio like no other. I have I have Burkhoff and Beaky and Grudem and and a few others and it's just uh, it's it's I, it's crazy so good.
1: Well, uh, to end us up, I'm I'm on a kind of a, a different trajectory. There's a few different books I have going on right now, but I'll, the one I'll focus on is uh, it's titled "Heirs of the Reformation: A Study in Baptist Origins," and it mm. actually I'll look real quick because that was not the book's original name. Um, it was originally published as Baptist. Secessionism, A Crucial Question in Baptist History. This is by a professor named James E. McGoldrick. Now, this faithful saint, uh, he actually passed away December 30th of 2021. So he's uh, freshly, uh, in, you know, in eternity. <laughs> so uh, interesting quick story about him. He wrote this book as a Baptist. Uh, it's about Baptist origins. And and I think it's around the turn of the millennium, Um he became a Presbyterian minister, and he ended, so far as I can tell, his professional life uh, teaching at Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. Um, so hmm. you talk about reform solidarity. We have this Presbyterian man who, uh, from my perspective so far, I'm halfway through. It's only about hundred and oh fifty pages or so. But basically, I'll give you the gist of it. If you're familiar with A Trail of Blood, which basically... Uh, is from about the 1930s. And one of my friends who is a Baptist, he said he knows some people that they treat that book as the Third Testament. And what, what Goldrick does <laughs> is basically goes through all—and and real quick, the Trail of Blood, a quick, quick preview is basically the argument is ever since the apostles, there's always been a line of Baptists. And basically what the author of this book does is goes through all of those people— and those religious sects that are identified in the Trail of Blood, and he examines them. He examines the historical documents. He examines their doctrine. He examines uh, as pretty much as much as is available on each of these groups, like the politions. Um, one of the things that uh, you might see on the blog is the Bogomils, uh, he, and, and I definitely was inspired to write a little bit about that. Uh, the Novations, and, and of course the Anabaptists. There's a rich section on that, which for Reformed folk, that's important because one of the biggest things the, you know, particular Baptists were showing with the way that they formatted the 1689 after the 1646 was to show Reformed solidarity apart from both Rome and the Anabaptists on doctrinal issues. But uh, as as you'll hear me say from time to time, long story long, uh, James in the book He's very fair, and he's taught me some academic um, integrity. You know, he says, hey, look, here's what we know about this group. Here is what the documents we have. And where there is a document that is an opposing party, he says we have to consider that the opposing parties back then that wrote about a particular sex doctrine may do it with a slant of bias, and we shouldn't put as much weight in that document. But... When you have a person who belonged to that religious group and an opponent and what they're both saying harmonize, we should put a lot of weight into that and we can rely mm-hmm. on it. And, you know, I won't give you the spoiler, but he's definitely shown that while some people in these these lines um, have maybe a, a Credo Baptist persuasion, that might be what's a common with them. They would certainly like Nick, you and I have so much more in common than I would with some of these other religious sects. So I would say he, well, uh, so far, uh, the verdict's out because I have halfway to go, but he's, he's shown well that the notion of the trail of blood, some people aren't going to like that I say this, is um, hopeful at best. So I'll, I'll leave it that way. So, <laughs> hey, w- we're done. Uh, we really appreciate you listening. We hope this encouraged you and you can join us. Just so you know, uh, we are full-time husbands, fathers, and employees. So our goal is to meet monthly. And um, yeah. and so that's kind of the periodicity you can expect from us uh, until maybe life affords us a little more time and we can um, ramp up our frequency. So yeah, catch us every other Monday. We'll still be putting out a blogcast and every Friday with new content. And Nick, to close us out, would you go ahead and just uh, let everybody know how they can find us on social media?
0: Yeah, i uh, got the same name everywhere, Reform Confess, so uh, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook uh, we post on there about daily again, you know, I'm over there making uh, pictures and stuff to put there and trying to get some dope quotes as the kids would say, I suppose uh, to put on there, so you can follow us there, and listen a review for this podcast on, on Apple or Spotify, or wherever you listen, would be really great and you can also get this podcast uh, pretty much everywhere, but yeah, thank you for listening uh, to the Reform Confessional podcast. We really appreciate your time, and I hope that you've been. We hope that you've been edified and go on and glorify the Lord.